This morning we're going to continue through our series called Journey Through the Bible. And uh, we have the privilege this morning of talking about David the King. David the King. But before we get started, let's pray together one more time. Father, we ask now, by your grace, through your Son, according to the power of the Holy Spirit, that you might minister to us now through your Word. Your Word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We pray, Lord, that your Word would strengthen us, Lord, where we're weak. Lord, we'll, we'll convict us, Lord, where we are in sin. Lord, would Lift up our eyes, Lord, to you when we are uh, distracted by many things. And we pray now, Lord, uh, that you would just give us a fresh vision of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, please turn to Second Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7. And what we're going to do today is we're going to just take kind of this opportunity as we talk about uh, David and particularly the Davidic covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. And we're just going to take this as an opportunity to zoom out, if you will, and to kind of take a big picture view of, of the entire story of redemptive history. Uh, through the lens of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, one of Jesus's, perhaps Jesus's primary message was that in him, the kingdom of God has come. What does that mean? And what does it mean for us? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So uh, we can go ahead and get started. And if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word from 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of one of the great ones of the earth. And I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel." 
and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The word of God. You may be seated. I want to see three things this morning concerning the kingdom of God. First, the kingdom calling. Second, the kingdom confirmed. And third, the kingdom come. The kingdom calling, the kingdom confirmed, the kingdom come. First, the kingdom calling. What I want to do is I just kind of want to look at the idea of the kingdom of God from the very beginning. We get the first concept of kingship in the Bible right there in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was, was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So even though here, the the explicit language of kingship is not present. Nevertheless, the the author is still trying to communicate us some, some profound truths about the nature of God. God is creator. God is creator. And by definition, the creator has full, total, and unalienable rights over his creation to do with it what he wishes at any time, at any place, at any point. God, in other words, is king over creation. Anyone who has the authority and capacity to say, to simply say, let it be, and it is, then that person's king. He's the boss. Anyone who can do that is the king. But shockingly, as the creation account continues, we see that God makes man specifically in the likeness and image of God, the Bible says. Now, in, in the day in which that was written, most likely by Moses, they would have understood what was meant by man being made in the image and likeness of God. Those terms, likenesses, and images were used to refer to creations or often statues that represented a king or a god. Kings would have these images made of themselves and place their images in the far reaches of their kingdom so that those in that part of the kingdom would know who the king is. In other words, they understood that these images bore something of the divine authority of the one whom they represented, of the authority of the one whom they represented. And so when it says that we were made in the likeness and image of God, what it means is that we are bearers, we're image bearers of God, and therefore we bear the God's authority. That is where it was supposed to be the case 
that where we were, God was there. God's image was there. We were supposed to be images to the rest of creation that where we were, God is king. We are bearers of God's authority. And so it actually makes perfect sense then that in Genesis uh, 128, and fall, in 128, it says, it says immediately after, it says that God made man in his image. This is what it says. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, he's commanding them to have dominion. Well, who has dominion? Kings. Rule. We were made to rule over the earth, to exercise authority over the earth, to shape it and mold it and create it and govern it in a way that, show, that would show God's goodness and God's authority and God's wisdom and God's creativity. That's what we were made for in his image. But the Bible says that we fell in the rebellion, in the fall. Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. And rather than joyfully submitting to God's kingship and and uh, and enjoying the privilege of being made in his image and exercising the authority the the great authority the dominion over the earth that god gave us it wasn't enough it wasn't enough that god would give us the whole earth rather we didn't want anyone else not even god himself to be lord over us and we usurped his authority and have been in rebellion ever since God said, the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. The Bible, the Bible says the, the wages of sin is death. And so we now bear the curse of our rebellion, which is death. And not just that, but when sin entered the world, God cursed the world. He cursed the devil who tempted Adam and Eve. He cursed Eve. He cursed Adam. He cursed the ground. And in this most famous and most important verse, in Genesis 3.15, this is part of the curse of the devil. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And so as we've said oftentimes before, right here in the very beginning, immediately after the fall, God is already telling us what the plan is. God's going to undo the works of the devil. He's going to destroy the, the, the work that the devil has done through a man. Through a man. A descendant of woman. And so, you've got to remember, this frames the whole Bible. So, if we're reading the Bible correctly, if we're reading the Bible correctly, the whole rest of the Bible as we read it, and especially the Old Testament, we should be asking this question. Where is that man? Where is the king? And when is he coming to make things right again? And if we read our Bibles correctly, we'll see that the entire Old Testament is directing us, is pointing us to this king. Generations after the the fall, uh, man became so wicked that God wiped the entire world away in judgment through a flood. And then after the flood... God picks up his promise to redeem the world through a man by choosing a man named Abraham. 
And he, and he gave Abraham great, a great promise. And we know that Abraham is the one who's going to carry forward this promise. Because what is the promise given to Abraham? In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we know that it's going to be somehow, some way through Abraham that God's going to fulfill his promise. Because God tells Abraham that it's going to be through him that the entire world will be blessed, restored. To the way it was meant to be. And he told Abraham also. He told Abraham, I will make your name great. Just like he told David. He said, he told Abraham, I'll make your name great. Who has a great name? Kings. And not only that, but he explicitly tells Abraham in Genesis 17, 6. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And as the story presses on. So one of the things we learn about the Bible is. It's what the theologians call progressive revelation. God doesn't reveal everything that he's going to do all at once. Rather, over the entire scope of human history, it becomes clearer and clearer over time. He told Abraham that kings would come from him, that in him all the families of the nations of the world would be blessed. In Genesis 49.10, Abraham's grandson Jacob makes this prophecy. He says, Talking to his son Judah, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So it's becoming clearer. Now who's the king going to come through? Through Abraham, through Judah. Through the kingdom of Judah. Even Balaam, Balaam, the wayward prophet, (coughs) who had to be corrected by a donkey, understood what was going to happen in Numbers twenty four seventeen? He said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And so by the time we get to the, the end of the Judges, which we talked about last time, Israel does ask God for a king, although they do not ask for a king with a right heart. Really, they just want to be like all the other nations. But nevertheless, God gave them a king, the first king named Saul, whom God rejected for his disobedience. But later, Samuel would go to a shepherd, the youngest, the least of his family. A man after God's own heart, a man named David. But before we get to King David, in the next point, what I want to talk about here. Is to explore this idea of kingdom calling. The Bible says that we were made to be kings, queens, rulers of the earth. And this is important to think about. This is important to think about because many, many of us sometimes we just don't think about, we haven't thought about how Christianity encompasses every area of our life. If you, if you kind of go through the history of philosophy, which that you may not find that interesting, but we, we have in our day something that's called the, the secular sacred divide. And what that means is this. It means that the whole culture is bending you, kind of impressing upon you this worldview that is non-biblical. And the worldview is namely this, that religion is something that's private that you keep to yourself, and when you're in church and stuff, that's good. But when you go out into the world, into the workforce, into the public, you can't. You you got to put that. You got to you got to keep it to yourself. It's called the sacred say a sacred secular divide. That is that what you do in your job isn't 
isn't spiritual. Only what you do at church is spiritual. The Bible says that's a lie. God made us to be kings, to exercise dominion over what? Over the the fish and the birds and the animals and the earth. What does that mean? It means that it means that our vocation, God created Adam and he put him in the garden and he told Adam to work. To do what? To garden. What does a gardener do? He takes the raw created order and he makes it orderly. And he makes it productive and he makes it fruitful and he can even get creative and make a shrub that looks like an elephant. And he can do all kinds of crazy things to make it beautiful and to make it attractive because, because what? Because we're kings, because we're rulers, because we have the creative power of God himself to create and structure the world in such a way to do good to others, to make food, to feed others, to, to, to uh, do services that serve the goods of others. And everything you do in world, including your vocation, it's, it's for God. God made you to do that. That's why we work. Everything you do, you're, when you create, when you serve, when you teach, when you build societies, when you invent, when you write songs, when you play music, when you mow the grass, you are exercising your dominion over the earth. You are doing what God made you to do. To be kings and rulers over the earth. To create society. To create a place where humanity can flourish for the glory of God. That's why Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink, almost the most mundane activities you can think of, he says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul is talking to bond servants, slaves. And this is what he says in Colossians 3.23. He's talking to slaves here. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Do you see it? He's talking to slaves. You understand that? He is telling them when you do whatever your job is, you're not, sir, you're not working for man. You're working for God. When you go to work, when you wake up and you go to work, you're not working for the government. You're not working for your boss. You're not working for a CEO. You're working for God. If you're not working for God, you better get a new job. Everything we do, we do for God. He told, he told these people, these slaves that probably did some of the most mundane things you can think of. And yet he's saying, look... You, sir, you, sir, you work hard because you work for God. Everything we do is for God. That's why Christians should be the best employees, should be the best employers, should be the hardest workers, should be careful to pay a fair wage, should, should be, have integrity in our, in our work lives. Because there's no such thing as a sacred secular divide. All that you do, do all to the glory of God because God has made us to exercise dominion over the earth. That's our kingdom calling, our calling to be kings. Number one, the kingdom calling. Number two, the kingdom confirmed. In our opening text, we read this passage here, 2 Samuel 7. And it begins with David 
expressing his desire to build God a house. And the, the, uh, the prophet Nathan, you know, he thinks it's a great idea. David has this desire to... He, David looks at his nice house and he says, How can I live in a house like this when God doesn't have a house, if you will? And so he goes to Nathan and Nathan thinks it's a great idea. But, uh, but Nathan hadn't explicitly heard from the Lord yet until later that night. And in a play on words, in a play on words, God tells David, God, God's, not, God, God's of course, he's pleased with David's heart. He's pleased that David would, would want to do that. But nevertheless, God tells David this. In, in a play on words, he says, you wanted to build me a house, but you won't. But here's what's going to happen. I'm going to build you a house. I'm, a house meaning a family, a de- descendant, a dynasty that kings will rule from you, after you. God was going to build a house for David. And this, this is what it said there in 2 Samuel verses uh, 11 and following. It says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. Their offspring. Notice, offspring. I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so what we see here, I mean, if we're following the story, what we see is that when it gets to David, David is descended from Abraham, descended from Judah. Right? Who said the kings would come from him. And David is the son of Judah. And now God makes this promise with David, this, this covenant with David. And so we know now that it's going to be through Abraham, through Judah, through David that this promised one would come. This king should come who will, who will come after David. But it's not just, not just any other king. But God says that this, this son, he says, God says, I will be a father to him. And he will be a son to me. Who's this king that's going to come from David? Well, it's going to be a son of David. And it's going to be a son of God. Sound familiar? Now, in the immediate context, in the immediate context, it's clear that, that Solomon's in view. But we know also when we read the Bible that Often prophecies are just, they're pregnant with more meaning than just right on the surface. Solomon's in view, but he's obviously telling us something much more than Solomon, because Solomon doesn't live forever. And this king that God's talking about is going to reign on the throne of David forever. That's what it says, forever. And even though David's descendants, which when you read Kings and you read Chronicles, you see that David's descendants, the kings descended from David they do eventually. They fall away from God. They rebel against God. But nevertheless, God makes clear here to David. But even though your descendants, your sons, will turn away from me, he says, my steadfast love will not depart from your house as it did from Saul's. 
In other words, it's a sure and steadfast guarantee from God that no matter what, no matter what happened down the family line of David, one day that king's going to come and his kingdom, descended from David, will last forever. That's the, that's the promise, that's the covenant that God makes with David. And this promise is carried forward through the, through the prophets. So again, it's progressive revelation. Over time, it gets clearer and clearer until we start to really begin to see the contours of who all the scripture is pointing to. And in the prophets, hundreds of years after David passes away, the prophets prophesy of this descendant of David. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jeremiah, prophesying at the time of the exile, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And finally, Ezekiel said this, God says, I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, and he, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And what we see here is that this king that is coming was not just going to be an ordinary king, sitting on an earthly king in an earthly throne. This king that is coming would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He would shepherd them. He would lead them. He would care for them. He would feed them forever. In other words, what would he do? He would make the world back to what it was meant to be. And I love this story because after God makes this covenant with David, we have here one of the longest, uh, a very lengthy prayer, David's response to the covenant that God makes. And right there in 2 Samuel verse 18, how does David respond to the covenant God makes with him? It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Have you ever said that before? You ever said that to God? Who am I, Lord? Who am I that you've brought me thus far? And see, there's a reason that David was God's chosen king. Because David had a a right heart. He had a heart, unlike Saul's, he had a heart of humility. David was going to show us what it means to actually be king before God. You see, 
Lots of people, there's all this kind of talk today, and lots of people don't like authority because and power because they just view it as means of oppression. Well, and it's true, you can use power to oppress. But the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the most powerful person who ever walked this earth, served. He served. You want to be a king before God? Then you take all the power and authority you have and you use it to serve others. We should, without exception, Look at our lives and all that we have and say, who am I, God, that you have brought me thus far? None of us deserve what we have been given. And this is the heart of a king, the Bible says. Isaiah 66, 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You see what God says? God says, I am the creator of the universe. And if you are humble in heart, I'm watching you. I'm watching over you. My hand will be for you. If you tremble at my word, if you treasure my word, if you submit to my word, if you're humble in heart towards me, Jesus put it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Do you want to be a king, a queen for God? You want to be in the kingdom of God? Be poor in spirit. It's the opposite. It's the opposite of the world. Don't make yourself great. Make yourself humble. God says, then you're great. You're really great in my eyes. We have the kingdom calling, number one. And number two, the kingdom was confirmed to David. And number three, the kingdom come. The kingdom come. The very first recorded words that we have of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark is this, Mark 1.15. Jesus was saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. See, Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. He rebuked the religious leaders, the religious elite, the scholars of his day, he rebuked them and told them, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Let me tell you something. Jesus knew his Bible. Even though he never was classically trained according to their standards. In fact, if you read the Bible, if you read Jesus carefully... Nearly everything he says is a reference or an allusion to something in the Old Testament. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, he's just not talking into a vacuum. 
He understands that there, he has something specific in mind from the Old Testament about what he means when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. And it's simply this. The king is here. The, every, the man that who would come to crush the head of the serpent, the man through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed, the descendant of David who is son of David and son of God, he's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. Why? Because time's here. It's up. It's here. Jesus Christ, the promised one, is here. He was it. He was the fulfillment of the time. Every prophecy, every foreshadowing, every promise. The thing, the, the thing in which the Bible says the angels long to look at it. The, the thing in which the author of Hebrews says that Abraham and David and all the fathers, they looked forward to it even though they couldn't quite see it clearly. They looked forward to it and greeted it from afar. The day when a promised one would become the most important person, the, most, the greatest being who ever lived on this earth the day that he was born. 2,000 years ago in a manger in Bethlehem. He is the promised one. And this is why he is called both son of man, son of God, and son of David. This is why Paul in his, the opening of his letter to the church at Rome, he, he, describes, he describes himself like this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning who? Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, Paul, a Jewish rabbi and teacher and Pharisee, understood exactly who Jesus was. The son of David, the son of God, the savior of the world. And that's why John, when he saw that revelation in the island of Patmos, right before the revelation ended, Jesus, declaring who he was to the Apostle John, said this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus Christ is the king. He's the king. So what then did Jesus mean when he said the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, this is what I think he means. Simply put, the kingdom of God is wherever God is king. Now, in a very, in a most real and ultimate sense, God is king everywhere. That's that's undoubted. He's king. He rules and reigns everywhere. But what I believe Jesus is referring to is where is where God is manifestly seen and believed in and apprehended as king. That's where the kingdom of God is. So think about it. Jesus said the kingdom would be like a little mustard seed, and you plant it in the ground, and it grows bigger than every other type of plant like that. 
Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a little, it's like leaven, and you, you hide it in the dough, and it, it spreads, and it fills up the whole lump. What's Jesus saying about the kingdom? He is saying that wherever Jesus Christ is believed on, trusted, and obeyed, every time a person in their heart of hearts bows the knee to King Jesus, and says, you are my Lord, and I will follow you, and, I, and I, I accept my king the terms of peace that you offer to me and the citizenship into your eternal kingdom. Wherever that happens, there Christ is king, and there is the kingdom of God. And was Jesus right? Was the kingdom of God at, is at hand? Is this what happened? It's exactly what happened. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was crucified. The greatest preacher who ever lived, the greatest miracle worker who ever lived, the greatest man who ever lived, didn't start a mega church. When he died, he had 120 cowering Christians who didn't know what to do in Jerusalem. That's it. 120. But then something happened. He rose from the dead. And those cowering Christians turned to bold proclaimers of the gospel. And 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later from 120 cowering Christians, there are billions of Christians on this earth in every populated continent on the earth. And there are, there are relatively few, far too many, but relatively few nations on the earth where the gospel is not there. Why? Because Jesus said, my kingdom is like leaven hidden in flour. And it grows till it fills all the earth. And Jesus said, the gospel of this kingdom must be proclaimed to every nation. And then the end will come. The kingdom of God has grown and it continues to grow. Another way to think about it is like this. The kingdom of God is like the new age invading the old. Right? In Christ, we are restored to the humanity we were meant to be all along. Instead of rebels of God, we are joyful servants of God. Instead of serving our own selves and our sin, we now serve our God and King in Christ and seek to please Him in all that we do. In other words, what what happens when a person becomes a Christian? We're made new. So the kingdom of God is what? It's the new age invading the old age. As the kingdom of God grows, the new age is invading the old age. We're pushing back the darkness. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And as the kingdom of God grows and as we proclaim Christ and as people are changed by the gospel and by the power of God and they live for him, there the kingdom of Christ is growing and it's growing and it's going to spread until one day. Until one day, time will be up. Every rule and authority will be cast down under Jesus' feet. He will return, Christ said, to sit on the throne of his kingdom. It's his. It belongs to him. He's the king. And one day, he's coming back for what's his. And then that'll be it. That'll be the end. 
What will Jesus do when he comes back to receive his kingdom? The Bible's quite clear. He'll cast out every rebel. He'll cast them out. The Bible says into the fires of hell. But those, but those, but see, that's the the whole point. Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ. We are citizens of another kingdom who proclaim that there's a king who is one day coming, but he has made terms of peace. And if you will accept these terms of peace, here's what the, king, the coming king promises you. If you will accept the terms of peace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he will 100% fully forgive every, every single thought of rebellion that you had against him. He'll fully forgive it, wipe it clean, and give you 100% full citizenship into his coming kingdom. That's a good deal. That's a good deal. That's, that's what he offers all it's, all it's going to cost you is everything. Your life, your will, your future. It costs you you. You have to bow the knee to King Jesus. But guess what? You were made to bow the knee for King Jesus. There's nothing else. There's nothing that would bring you more joy than to live as who you were made to live as. There's two destinies for every people, depending on where you stand with the king. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. I'll tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed one day that graveyard back there is going to be empty be raised from the dead the bible says there'll be a resurrection of all people actually some will be raised to life eternal life some will be raised the bible says to eternal life death. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Can I get a witness? But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of our God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's free. It's a free offer of grace. It doesn't matter who you were. If you come to Christ. He'll change you. He'll change who you were. He'll forgive you. And he'll give you full unfettered access. To the kingdom of God. Don't you want it? Don't you want the kingdom of God? It's free. 
All you have to do is bow the knee to the good and gracious kingship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,